brought to you by Prep Matters and the Self-Driven Child. We're not talking about, oh, we must be teetotalers for our entire life and there's no drugs or alcohol ever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about delay, 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 because it's important not just for the brain, but for the chances that your kid will have a problem later. You know, 90% of people who have drug and alcohol issues later on in life say they started using before 18. Um, Again, correlation causation issues. And then we also know that with each passing year, the risk of having substance use disorder during your lifetime goes down dramatically, actually. Mm. So if you look at like eighth grade versus 12th grade, um, you know, you cut your risk way, way down with each passing year. So if we can just delay, you know, that age of first use, um, then we are just doing a huge amount, not only for their brain development, but to lower the risk that they'll have a problem later in life. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. Jessica Leahy, the addiction inoculation, raising healthy kids in a culture of dependence. Jessica Leahy is a teacher, writer, and mom. Over 20 years, she's taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. Jessica is also the author of the best-selling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed, published in 2015, and she co-hosts the podcast, Hashtag AmWriting. She earned a BA in comparative literature from the University of Massachusetts and a JD from the University of North Carolina School of Law. Jessica lives in Vermont with her husband and two sons. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me again. I am so looking forward to this conversation <laughs> and I and I so appreciated this book. Um, you know, for folks who 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 know and love and have followed your work for years. I have the sense that this book may be a little bit of a surprise um, because they know you as being so capable and so competent. And you describe yourself in this book uh, as, you know, self-decried, overachieving perfectionist. Yeah. So the last five years of my teaching career, I was working in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. I was their teacher, their writing teacher, but really I taught a little of everything. And um, I always, you know, we had a sort of a constantly... Um, changing cast of characters in our classroom because kids stay for all different periods of time and they're coming and going all the time. So I have to reintroduce myself each class. And every time I'd introduce myself, I would always introduce myself by telling them that I'm an alcoholic and I have um, my sober date is uh, June 7th. 2013. And um, I imagine that was really purposeful because I I have the sense it also helps people broaden their sense of what an alcoholic might look like. Yeah. They always say, almost always, they're like, you don't look like an alcoholic. And I think um, that's just because we have a fairly limited imagination. And that's what the media that, you know, the media shows us something different. And, but as Stephen King says in on writing, we all look about the same when we're puking in the gutter. So, um, you know, Stephen King was an alcoholic and a drug addict and I'm an alcoholic. And I think, you know, we come in lots of shapes and sizes and we definitely come in lots of backgrounds, but having gone to uh, 12 step recovery program meetings for a long time, there are a lot of people that look like me and a lot of people with a similar story to me, lots of perfectionists, lots of people with anxiety, which is one of the main reasons I think I started drinking. Um, so yeah, it's not an uncommon story. I'm not, you know, I I think it's going to be really important as we start learning about preventing substance abuse, that we figure out that there aren't a lot of ways to predict based on demographics or socioeconomics, that kind of thing, um, hmm. who's, who's going to have a problem and who's not. One of the points in the book that you raise is how 
important and how valuable it is to normalize conversations about substance use and substance yeah. use disorder. Um, I wonder if you could, if you could take a moment and just, just to frame things for us, you know, how is substance use disorder defined and how do people come to know that they have that? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about you taking your test and I'm thinking, but I'm grading on a curve here. Um, <laughs> the, this, and I'm, I'm also glad you're using the word substance use disorder. I think despite the fact that the word addiction is in the title of my book, it should be probably out there um, from the beginning that um, everyone from, you know, all the style guides changed in the last couple of years. We're not supposed to say, you know, uh, someone who uh, we're not supposed to talk about addicts. We're not supposed to talk about junkies. Um, we're supposed to use person first language, like mm. just as you wouldn't say he is an autistic, you would say he is a person with autism. I am a woman with a substance use disorder. However, you try writing the title of a book that uses the term substance <laughs> use disorder. It just, yeah, it, it's tough. Um, Roll off so the tongue, I, not I'm, so much. <laughs> I know. So I'm really happy that you're, you're with me on the language stuff. Um, <laughs> and that language, I think, is important mainly because, you know, it, it what the attempt is, is to take the stigma off of, mm -hmm. you know, that person oriented language so that we can sort of understand that this is something that, you know, around 10 percent of us have an issue with because of our wiring, because of our brain chemistry, whatever that thing is. And so, you know, from that perspective, I think it's important to talk about the fact that, um it is a scary conversation to have with kids, but it doesn't start with a conversation about, you know, like injecting heroin. It starts really, really young. And, and you know, the big spoiler alert here is that really good substance abuse prevention programs in schools and with parents look a lot like no coincidence, really good social emotional learning programs and really good health programs and really good health programs don't start with a conversation about injecting heroin. They start with a conversation about um, brushing our teeth and why we don't uh, swallow the toothpaste, why we spit it out and why we wash our hands and why and, and you know, conversations about like when kids are first learning their letters and talking about what whose name is written on that label for that medication and why do you think mommy's name is on that label and not daddy's name or why you know why can i can you take something that's prescribed for mommy and why not i think those are the conversations we start with and that makes it a lot less scary because we're sort of you know, doing developmentally appropriate things and, and stuff like that. And then just as the sex conversation is not one conversation, the substance abuse conversation is not one conversation either because, sorry, the dog is um, deciding to chew on my Jane Austen figurine. Um, well, we know the dogs are one, one of does. the solutions that you have in the back of the book. So it's so totally welcome to the party. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, having conversations it gets easier and easier. And I can tell you right now that the first time I had to talk to my kids about my substance use, um, I, I got sick and threw up. It was yeah. so scary to me. And so, but every single time you have those conversations, it gets easier and easier, just like, you know, as we normalize uh, conversations about sex and consent and stuff like that, you know, go off and read Peggy Orenstein's book, Girl and Sex and Boys and Sex, read those for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a similar sort of situation. I promise the more you talk about it, the easier it gets. Hmm. Brene Brown and the Me Too. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, just so, so many of the points that you make in the book just strike me, you know, it's just good parenting, you know, just good parenting across the board. Um, you know, so, so there's advice there that will help all parents, really with all kids, whether or not substance abuse ever, you know, darkens your door, yeah, which yeah. I thought was so great. And I also really appreciated um, how progressive it is. I mean, you know, the, the age appropriate conversations, your point about toothpaste and brushing your teeth that you can have with little guys and kind of what this sequence might look, you know, mm -hmm. year after year, mile after milestone, um, which is just, it's just so good. Um, there are pages and pages and pages about re really wonderful insights about different drugs and and what they do to brains and 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 so I I won't drag us through all mm -hmm. that because we could talk for hours about it but in in a big picture way could you talk a little bit about what we should know about substance and substance abuse and developing brains in just kind of a high level way there are some really interesting conversations going on right now um, about drug use in adults. Carl, Dr. Carl Hart has a new book called, um, you know, he has a he has one book called High Price, but he has a new one called Drug Use for Grownups. Um, Michael Pollan has written beautifully about psychedelics, and uh, I think 
those conversations have been really interesting to me lately because a lot of people want to talk about the fact that, um, you know, they like those books that are talking about adult use like to talk about the fact that risk is overblown and, you know, you can responsibly use drugs and alcohol. And I think that's absolutely correct. There is some really cool stuff going on with psychedelics and end of life and PTSD and stuff like that. And Carl Hart makes some really good arguments in his book about, you know, safe drug use for adults. What I want to make it clear is that's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about ad children and adolescents. Children, adolescents are going through the second of two of the most, um, where their brains are what we call the most plastic. Plastic meaning that yes, they're changing and evolving, but they're also acutely sensitive to the environment for good and for bad. So the good stuff we do for them, the good things we give them, the supports we give them that will positively impact their brains, all the sleep and the good nutrition and all that sort of stuff will have a great positive impact on the brain. And the stuff that they put in their bodies or that they, that affects them, adverse childhood experiences, stuff like that, um, will negatively affect them in a way that it might not later on as adults or even as children who are older than two and not haven't yet hit puberty. Um, so much change is going on in the brain. The neurons are getting covered with the myelin and the syn synapses are, are just going crazy. Synaptogenesis, we're getting like new synapses all the time. They're, the frontal lobe is going online. Now, it's not just that construction is happening, although that's really, really important. Um, things are... In the adolescent brain, the big struggle is to keep some sort of equilibrium, right? And that we have um, Dr. Lauren Steinberg writes beautifully about sort of the two different phases of growth in the brain and the fact that during adolescence, this sort of lower brain emotion uh, limbic system stuff is in overdrive and the organized higher level stuff that they're getting um, in that they're hooking up to in their frontal lobe isn't quite hooked up yet, but that's coming. And so they have drives toward novelty and risk and doing things that are dangerous that their frontal lobe isn't quite ready to um, be fully in charge of. The conductor is not quite on duty yet. Um, I sometimes refer to it as like the bus driver and all the loud kids in the back of the bus, all the loud kids in the back of the bus punching each other. That's the lower brains or limbic system and the bus driver who can keep track of all those kids and, you know, stoplights. That's the frontal lobe. Um, that bus driver is just not quite fully there yet. And some of the stuff that drugs and alcohol do to the brain, either because the receptors for that particular drug, like for example, marijuana, the, the parts of the brain that sort of the marijuana chemicals latch onto are in the hippocampus and the hippocampus is so important for learning and memory and processing emotional memories. And when we mess with that stuff during adolescence, not only does development sort of get off track, there's no backseas on this either. Like once they hit their mid twenties, that period of plasticity is pretty much over. And it's not like you can go back and, get makeups on, you know, the stuff that you missed because you were doing drugs when you were 16 and you affected how your hippocampus works. There's, um, and there's all kinds of questions about correlation and causation, but you know, the limbic, the hippocampus is smaller in, um, in kids who are chronic users of, of marijuana, for example, whereas in adults, I'm not going to say that there's no bad effects for marijuana in the adult brain, but there are a lot fewer negative effects in the adult brain than if a kid whose brain is still developing, you know, starts using drugs like that. And other, there are lots of other little things, and I try not to bore people with them in the book. I tried to make it as, you know, digestible as possible for someone who isn't as big of a dork as me and doesn't want to know all the tiny little details. Um, but yeah, it does a lot more damage in an adolescent brain, some of it permanent, some of it temporary, some of it permanent. And it's important to know that because we're not talking about, oh, we must be teetotalers for our entire life and there's no drugs or alcohol ever for our entire lives. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about delay, delay delay because it's important not just for the for the brain but for the chances that your kid will have a problem later you know 90% of drug and alcohol people who have drug and alcohol issues later on in life say they started using before 18 um, again correlation causation issues um, and then 
we also know that with each passing year, the risk of having substance use disorder during your lifetime goes down dramatically, actually. Mm. So if you look at like eighth grade versus 12th grade, um, you know, you cut your risk way, way down with each passing year. So if we can just delay, you know, that age of first use, um, then we are just doing a huge amount, not only for their brain development, but to lower the risk that they'll have a problem later in life. Hmm. I'd love to talk about two things. One, sort of the, the feedback loop of struggle and academic struggle, and, 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 and you talk <laughs> yeah. about so well. But before we do, yeah. I'd love to, you know, if you can just um, give us an overlay. You, you talk about genetics and epigenetics, mm-hmm. which a lot of people might like have explained to them. And you alluded to A scores, which I think are worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, all in, all in the sense that the, 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 the phrase that always pops to my mind when I think about these things is that as a society, particularly a vaguely puritanical one, we want to ascribe character to all of these issues when ultimately a mm-hmm. lot of it is chemical. And, you know, I, you know, you talk so much about shame that, that, that we have, we, we heap scorn and shame on other people, but we also heap it on ourselves. And for us to understand that there are genetic and epigenetic and v- vulnerabilities and also the ones that we grow up with that um, we're not responsible for, but we can do mm-hmm. something about. So could you just talk about kind of mm-hmm. how much of what causes, you know, puts us this, in this position? So before we even start, let's talk about risk and protection from substance abuse, like an old timey um, scales of justice scale, mm-hmm. right? So the heavier your risk side, the heavier your protection side is going to need to be. So let's starting with genetics. Um, genetics are not destiny. I happen to have lots of relatives with drug and alcohol problems. Um, I grew up in a household where one of my parents uh, is the recovering alcoholic now. And um, that's great. I'm so happy. Um, my sister doesn't have a problem. Um, my husband grew up in a family where he has drug abusers and alcoholics in his family, um, but he is a everyday, normal, moderate user, and he managed to escape that. So genetics, it looks like is about 50 to 60% of the picture. And this is, I hate this analogy. It is incredibly apt, so I'm going to use it, but I'm not a fan. I got to come up with something better. Um, picture genetics as the bullet that you put in a gun and trauma is the trigger. So lots and lots of people can have that genetics bullet loaded, um, but it's the trauma that pulls the trigger. And that's where things bleed over into this thing called epigenetics, which just means above the genes. Um, Essentially what it means is that I could have the genetics for something, um, but the environment that I grow up in and the stresses that I encounter, especially toxic stress, uh, can really cause my genes to express in different ways. So I can, I'm not actually changing my genetics, but I'm changing the way the genes work essentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that epigenetics is a huge field that's just exploding right now. And it's fascinating. It's so interesting. So epigenetics and genetics, that's like 60% of the picture, 50 to 60% of the picture is genetics. And then we get to the trauma, the ACEs that you talked about. And what ACEs means is adverse childhood experiences. The CDC's in, CDC and Kaiser Permanente did this massive study looking at Um, things that happened to people in their childhood and what kind of health outcomes they had later. And it turns out that adverse childhood experiences affect so many things from our mental health to whether or not we have a stroke at a young age to whether or not we have a heart attack later on, all kinds of stuff, including substance abuse. And if you want a better picture of that, uh, you don't have to read the CDCs and Kaiser Permanente stuff. You can go read Nadine Burke Harris's beautiful book, um, The Deepest Well, as she talks about how um, ACEs affect her patients. She's, it was, she is a pediatrician um, and what she sees as, uh, and she adds on to the CDC's list. CDC has, in fact, if you want to find out your own ACE score, Google ACE quiz and CDC, and you'll get a a quiz and you'll get your score out one out of 10. And at any given time in my rehab classroom, most of the kids scored somewhere between like a six and a 10. So those kids had lots of adverse childhood experiences, which include things like violence in the home, substance abuse in the home, loss of a parent, uh, separation, divorce, those kinds of things. Now, I always get nervous mentioning separation and divorce because 50% of marriages end in divorce. So the last thing I want to do is make parents feel like, oh, great. Now I've really screwed up. Um, I did the best I could do getting out of that marriage. It was really toxic for everyone. What I'm talking about when I talk about risks is not things you should feel bad for. 
what I'm talking about when I talk about risks are things that are, it's information that is powerful, right? Because some of the other risk factors are things like early academic, well, academic failure in generally, but especially early academic failure, social ostracism, early aggression. If your child is aggressive towards other kids, that is a big warning sign that your kid may be at risk for substance abuse later on in life. But you can also imagine how these things get all tangled up, right? So like if a kid is aggressive, then they may also be socially ostracized and they social ostracism and academic failure are also intertwined. So early, early, early intervention for these things is super important. And I don't want parents to feel like I don't, I'm not doing enough. Oh my gosh, one more thing I have to do. All I'm saying is like, when I look at my own kids, I say, well, great. I've not only got given them the genetics, but I've screwed up on a whole bunch of other fronts as well, trying to do the best we can do for our family, like moving during a really delicate transition time. Mm -hmm. And transitions are another big risky time for kids. Um, but I'm not feeling bad about that. What I'm saying is, I now have power. I have some control based on the fact that I know these risk factors exist. So now that I know that, what can I do on the protection side to outweigh that? So I think I want to empower parents. I don't want parents to feel shame. I don't want them to feel bad. I don't want them to feel like there's all these other things they have to do. I want parents to feel empowered with this knowledge. Um, and that's, I mean, that's my goal with this. But I think you do a great job of that in, in part, um, pointing out a lot of these things that are stressors, not just independent stressors, but, you know, sort of, you know, chicken and egg and, you know, compounding effects that a right. lot of things, you know, that, that parents might not necessarily think about, um, that, that aggression cannot, you know, in, in, in tempers are oftentimes nothing more than a, than a nervous, excuse me, than a sensitive stress response that is the mm -hmm. fight you know the fleas, right. freeze freeze fight or frightened because you talked right. about anxiety early on we so often think that you know we, we have a certain model of what anxious kids look like and it doesn't occur to a lot of people that particularly little boys who get into you know tangles more more mm -hmm. readily that they just may be much more sensitive to the world than that they live in that's why i love it when i go and tour schools and go into i was in um a school in Dallas and I went into the kindergarten and in all of the elementary school classrooms, they had, you know, pictures of brains and um, explanation of the lower brain and the and the higher brain functions and teachers would talk to the kids in terms of and kids understood like I'm, you know, the reason I want to punch her for saying something mean to me is because I'm acting from my lower brain. And if I want to be a big kid, I have to try to think about it before I do it. And I do that with my upper brain. That kind of language is empowering to kids. And so the earlier we start talking about brain development with kids in obviously developmentally appropriate language, the better we can help kids understand that um, they can be in control and they can have, it also helps with integration of their brain functions. You know, Dan Siegel's work in the book Aware in particular, he talks a lot about, you know, helping kids get more integrated. And one of the things that he also talks about in terms of, that Dan Siegel talks about in terms of drug and alcohol abuse is that a lot of people who have issues with drug and alcohol abuse are just have a lack of integration in their brain mm. functions. Their lower brain and their upper brain are just not, you know, working together. And so um, that's one of the reasons I decided to try some of his guided meditation stuff in the book with my kid, just to see, you know, what if that would help at all. But um, but yeah, there's. I think that's one of the things we can do for kids. And as his Dan Siegel's uh, writing partner, Tina Brain, Payne Bryson, talks about also, you got to name it to tame it. And kids need to be able to name their emotions and name what is frustrating them and, and how they feel about stuff. I don't know if you've seen it lately, but on like TikTok and YouTube, there have been these kindergarten teachers that come on and talk about politicians who are behaving badly and how a kindergarten <laughs> teacher would address <laughs> Like, really? Sweetie, I know. And there was actually one about Piers Morgan that I saw this morning. Okay, sweetie, I know you're angry. I know it makes you very angry when people say, you know, validate the emotion and help them name it. Sweetie, <laughs> you just can't storm off the set and quit your job because someone had an argument against something you said that was mean to Meghan Markle. You know, it's just, it was very funny. Oh, so, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and pulling together those, your, the, um, both Dan Siegel's talk about, about mindfulness meditation and also Tina Payne Bryson with the name entertainment that, that both of those get at a uh, really great point that you make about, um, that it creates some distance 
from the feeling, some distance mm-hmm. from the situation um, so that we can, we don't respond as intensely, right? Mm-hmm. That we can look at these things from some distance and have conversations. And so much right. of the the book is is so helpful in, in helping parents, all of us, to, you know, how to have conversation with kids about that. Yeah, the, the mindfulness thing I was talking about, the Dan Siegel one, his Wheel of Awareness sort of guided. You, you can just Google Wheel of Awareness Dan Siegel and it's right there on his website. But it's interesting because it takes you in various steps. It takes you sort of out of yourself a little and helps you distance yourself from those scary big emotions and not, not ignore them, but help you get outside of them to look back at them. In both two of his books, actually, Mindsight and, and Aware, he talks about an adolescent that he was treating and that that adolescent had a lot of problems, had behavior conduct disorders because he had a lot of trouble, maybe it was anxiety, but he had a lot of trouble getting outside those big feelings and being able to look at them from outside. And that's, you know, he, the work that he did with his kid was essentially integrating that. But the kid in that book actually would be a prime kid candidate for substance use disorder, because when those feelings are so big and so scary, um, especially for kids that have had violence in their lives and abuse in their lives, you know, you don't, it's not every kid that gets, you know, let me help you practice this mindfulness stuff. And instead it's like, oh man, I just want to stuff that down. I want to numb out. I'm, you know, I want to take an opiate and not feel it anymore. Um, And that works great in the short term. And in fact, there are some people that say, and you know, this is controversial, but a lot of people have been through super heavy duty, like 10 out of 10, you know, sort of trauma stuff. Uh, I knew this one woman who had been just through horrific violence in her childhood. And she said that drugs are what kept her alive and able to cope until she could get to a point where she could get help for herself. And while I certainly don't advocate for that solution, it was a really interesting way of putting it that no one else was helping her with her any, all these big feelings she was having and her trauma and all that other stuff. So she had to deal with it the way she could. And she ended up having to use drugs and it almost killed her. But on the other mm. hand, she got sober as an adult. And she says, you know, looking back, I don't know that I would have stayed alive if I hadn't been able to numb that feeling out somewhere. So for me, the big idea is, you know, how do we help kids from the beginning so that they don't get to the point where they need to numb out, um, have a beer so that they feel, so they get that liquid courage so they can feel enough so they can, you know, the drink I miss the most always is the one before going to the party so that I don't feel like an imposter walking in. So I don't feel, I don't feel as socially awkward walking into a party. And now I have to just say, well, what the heck's your problem that you get nervous walking into a party of people that you know are your friends? Um, you know, helping kids sort of get at the root cause rather than having to to mask it by having a beer and getting some liquid courage should be our goal, I think, at all times. Yeah, that that discussion of of one drink, Jess, was pretty. Yeah. Uh, you know, one drink, Jess is great. <laughs> one drink, Jess is fantastic. The problem is, is I can't have just yeah. one drink. I mean, yeah. you know, and that's the other thing I want parents to understand is that, you know, for 90% of y'all out there, God bless you. You can have the drinks and the drugs that you want if they're mm-hmm. not hurting anyone else, because mm-hmm. if you don't have a problem with it, then, you know, this book is still for you and there yeah. are, but there, but, um, I'm not, you know, 90% of your kids, lots of kids are going to try drugs and alcohol and never have a problem with it. And there's, you know, if you look at the studies for even the Vietnam study, the, the Vietnam, a whole bunch of Vietnam veterans had, were exposed to heroin when they were in Vietnam. And so they took a lot of heroin when they were in Vietnam and they came home and a whole bunch of them, a remarkable number percentage of them got better and never went back, never relapsed without doing any treatment at all. It was a situational, you know, thing for them. Um, you know, a lot of kids are going to be able to try a lot of stuff and be fine. Hmm. What I'm trying to do is help prevent substance abuse for two, well, substance use for two reasons. One, because it harms the brain and it makes it so that they don't have to deal with the stuff that they should be dealing with at the time. And two, to prevent the 10% of them later on who might have issues with substance use disorder. I mean, I would like to work from both of those perspectives. Mm. 
And I, I, I love that second point is a really interesting one because you may mention a while ago that um, there's all this plasticity in the brain during adolescence. And if you miss that opportunity, if you garble the whole thing up, you can't kind of do it 24, which you're supposed to do at age 14 yeah. or 15. But there's also of- there's also there's also a thing where when kids start really abusing drugs and alcohol, there's sort of an arrested development thing that happens. And it's, you know, a lot of people talk about the fact that when you go into recovery, you're really picking up where you left off when you got mm-hmm. um, when you really started using heavily <laughs> because you didn't learn coping skills and mature in the way that you should have. So it's not just from a chemical and wiring perspective, but also from an emotional perspective, it sort of arrests you where you were. Well, that's exactly, yeah, I think that's exactly, I think it's very well said. um, And certainly from your book, The Gift of Failure, of talking about how important the experiences are for kids to struggle with things with support, you know, Mm -hmm. parents and teachers, but to struggle with hard things because that's how they grow grow and develop, you know, both as people and, and neurologically. And if you, if you <laughs> had the student years ago who was a lovely kid, but we're, you know, doing dreary test prep through junior year and, and he, and he just, I could, he wasn't motivated for anything, mm-hmm. you know, and certainly barely, he's certainly not engaging with SED prep. <laughs> and, and I was kind of like, man, I don't get this. And I, and I kind of said it casually something to one of his friends, which maybe I shouldn't have. And he's like, oh, him, Mr. Wake and Bake. And I thought, and I had no, I had no idea yeah. because I'm so, I'm so square. I didn't know what I was seeing. And I thought, you know, these are, because you talk about this with THC, not only that it impairs our ability to recall things, but it, we, we literally don't create memories because this group, yeah. you know, what the hippocampus does and you think yeah. you just wash out four years of that really important work of developing yeah. who the, who you are and who the brain you're going to have as an adult, like. Yeah, that's also what alcoholic blackouts are, what makes them so scary. And what made them so scary for me was it wasn't, you know, if I sat there and thought about it long enough that I could retrieve the memory, the memory was never made. So it's that's scary. It's like a someone, um, I think it's another Stephen King thing where he talks about it's as if the film gets spliced and it's just gone. It's just gone. It's it's a scary thing. Yeah, I had I had um, no I didn't you, know that. I had no idea. Yeah. That's so interesting. What's also interesting about what you said about taking risks and and making mistakes and stuff like that is so much of what I was so risk oriented in my brain that Dan Siegel said this other really interesting thing when I talked with him on the phone that I was scared to death about the fact that we moved um, right during a really it was after eighth grade, before going into a new high school, he'd had lifelong friends since elementary school. He went to a small K through eight school and um, and I trusted the parents. I knew the parents really well. And we were sort of really parenting as a village. And we moved to this place where he knew no one. I knew no parents of kids here. And there's, you know, I essentially created a big risk factor. I mean, it was the best thing for our family, but for him, it was not good. And Yet Dan Siegel, of course, um, turned it around and said, well, but kids are wired, adolescents are wired for novelty and risk. And there is so much novelty and risk in moving. So this is about framing. How do you frame just for yourself and for him that making new friends, trying out for something new, going and checking out a club, uh, you know, meeting new people, all of that is positive risk. And one of the ways we help kids satisfy that need for positive risk is by, or for risk in general is by introducing some positive risk. And Mm -hmm. just for the parents listening, you know, when you're a kid, you have to understand that adolescents have baseline lower levels of dopamine than adults and younger children. So when you're a kid, when you're teenagers, like, I'm just so bored. It's not that they're lacking imagination. They really are bored because dopamine is motivation. Dopamine is like engaging with life and drive and all that sort of stuff. And so if their baseline levels are lower than, you know, at any other time during life, of course, they're going to seek out adrenaline and risk and things that sort of give them a little squirt of dopamine so that they can feel something. Um, So just keeping all of that in the background, I think, can be helpful for for helping kids find ways to take risks that are productive and helpful for them. They're usually not sometimes not quite as fun as like jumping off of a garage into a pool or something <laughs> like that. But but we can help guide them in ways. Yeah, not as good on TikTok, but I get that. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I mean, I, 
it's it's such a great, interesting point, such a good one because we're back to these these chemicals of you know dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin. I mean, these are have have are neurotransmitters that meet specific needs. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, to the to that story about the 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 per, the woman who said drugs got me through. That mm-hmm. if we don't have healthy ways to meet those needs, we're going to use unhealthy ways. Yeah. To meet those yeah. needs. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of her other outlets was self-harm, and I don't recommend that either. But, you know, when we don't give people outlets for their pain, then they're either going to try to numb or try to release it in some other way. And, uh, you know, either we're there with interventions and um, therapy and name it to tame it and uh, integration and all the other, you know, things that we can try or, you know, self-medicating happens. And, you know, there's also all kinds of schools of thought in in addiction science and in substance abuse, all the different camps, you know, there's the there's the it's a brain disease camp which mm. has valid points and there's the it's the developmental disorder camp which definitely has valid points and there's the it's trauma related and <laughs> Gabor Mate's out there writing about that in a very convincing way um or here's a crazy thought it could be a little bit of all these things <laughs> we don't have to we don't have to put all of our chips oh, it's in a harder one book to place write. on i know <laughs> but i think i don't know i think people's lack of imagination around multifaceted you know uh, people want to say you know 12 step recovery is the only way to get better i don't mm. believe that either it worked for me definitely didn't work for other people i know i think and it, you know this in education, we're all about that. It's all black and white. You're either, you know, you're this or the that. And if you're for this, you can't be for that. And that just drives me nuts. And so that's why I think a lot of the, for example, the peers chapter that features a kid named Brian, you know, the, the, the sort of the theory is that uh, peer group is a huge risk. You know, if you're if mm-hmm. friends of your kids use drugs and alcohol, then that is a huge risk factor for substance abuse. And I, yes, um, but I think it's a little more complicated than that. And that's what's interesting to me is what does the research say, but what does the research not say about the confounders in there and why this may be a a correlation thing and not a causation thing. And so um, Mm. I, I like looking in the gray areas. I'm a fan of the gray areas. Yeah, well, they're 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 certainly more interesting, and and I think the truth lies in there. They're they're messier, right? They're harder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? And it's uh, also frustrating for me as someone who purports to be helpful <laughs> to parents because <laughs> you know some of this. I want to be able to fix things. I want to ha- yeah. be able to wave a magic wand. You know, okay, your kid doesn't like math. I can now wave my magic wand because I read a lot of research and I can make your kid interested in math, and that's just not how it works. Or mm. you know, wave this magic wand over here, and your kid guaranteed will never have a problem with substances. And I can't do that either. All I can do is say, here's all the risks. Here's all the protections. The more protections you have, the more it can mitigate the risks. And, you know, let me just give you all the information so that you can figure out what'll work best for your family and your kid. Yeah, I love, I love that. I'd rather just have the magic wand though. Yeah. <laughs> That's what's it. missing from my wall. I'm going to go, I have to put up, um, my kids have their Harry Potter wands that I was they've say, grown, and I should put those on. I have a feather, but I should put nice. some Harry Potter wands up. Nothing like a little omnipotence to get you through the day. Exactly. Um, I, I mean, I do, I do, I do so love that, uh, that justice scale of, of, you know, perceiving more risks, you know, how do we, how do we protect kids more? Um, you know, the, to your, to your point about that messiness, um, it makes me think a little bit about, about parenting styles, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that high love and high discipline are kind of, mm-hmm. kind of where we want to be. And it, but it's so much easier <laughs> to kind of go, to kind of go all in on, on what was it? Jane Nelson talks about being, being kind and, or being firm, but also kind. And, and it's, mm-hmm. it's easier to be one or the other. Right. Can, can, just, can you kind of walk parents through a little bit what we know about parenting styles and kind of in a perfect world, the direction that we move in? Yeah. So it turns out that, you know, most of the time when I talk about gift of failure, people automatically think, oh, Leahy's talking about permissive parenting, that you just kind of walk away, put your hands up and say, go for it, kid, you're on your own. And that's absolutely not what I'm saying at all. In fact, I think I've been a much more strict parent um, since handing some autonomy over to my kids. Um, So the idea is that if you are the kind of parent who just says, these are the rules, do it because I said so, um, you know, controlling a lot of what your kid does, being highly directive, um, that sort of parenting actually 
will foster dishonesty in the relationship. We know that kids who are more highly controlled uh, lie to their parents more. Um, but if you're the kind of parent that has really that has high expectations, but is supportive of the kids when they fall short of those expectations and helps them become better, um, I'm all about progress over end product. I'm all about you know getting kids to believe me when I say what I really care about is the learning because you know what are you going to do to make it better next time? That kind of parenting is the kind of parenting that really hits the sweet spot of you know supportive and I love you, I love you, I love you. You're so wonderful, but not that like, and then the world will come, um, you know, the world will rain down around you if, you know, you break one rule. That's sort of, I think that's a really hard spot to to hang on to mainly because we tend to parent from um, emergencies. We tend to parent from like what's going wrong today and what I need to get done today and what needs to be perfect today. And I tend to, you know, there have been times when I've said to my parents, they should just respect us more. Like, I just, this is infuriating. This is disrespectful and they should just respect us more. And I think my husband was raised by two parents who he was an only child and he was raised by two parents who really like felt that respect was something to be earned and talked with their kid. Like he was a smart, intelligent, you know, human being to be respected. And he was like, yeah, but in this situation, we have to look at how we're handling this, that, and the other thing. Whereas I tend to think, I was used to think more like, you know, they just have to obey because we're the parents and we're saying this and that's going to get you into trouble, I think. And, <laughs> and like I said, for lots of things, not only because it can undermine your relationship, um, but also as we've talked about before, kids are adolescents in particular individuating and they need more autonomy with each passing year, more control over details of their life with each passing year. And if we don't give it to them, they're going to find it and they're going to grab it. And sometimes they'll grab it by deceit. And during this pandemic, that's been a disaster, right? Because <laughs> we as parents, I mean, if we feel helpless as parents, as adults, think how helpless they feel. And then the problem is, is that we feel helpless. So we're taking more control in the only place we have control, which is in our homes with our families. Now, all of a sudden, kids have even less autonomy and control than they had before. And taking away autonomy and control creates learned helplessness and creates low levels of self-efficacy. And we end up in a horrible cycle where we're creating helpless kids. And yeah, can I, can I and repeat kids that? will lie to us. <laughs> if I can repeat that back for one, for one moment, because I think it's a, such an important point that we know how stressful is a low sense of control. Yeah. And that stress for so many kids is one of the reasons that they take up substances or use them mm -hmm. more frequently to, to sort of self-soothe or self-medicate. But it's hard for us as parents to give up. It's a, bit, a little bit of a zero-sum game, right? For my kid to have more autonomy, more control, I have to let right. go. And that, of course, is a little bit stressful for me. Right. And yeah. so I think about yeah. you know, the Eli Leibitz in space and, you know, stuff about parents meditating, you know, if, if parents are more calm, their kids can be, they, they can support that autonomy and, and, mm -hmm. and, and take stress out of the kind of family dynamic, um, regardless of what their kids do. Well, and think about self-efficacy. I mean, if a kid, and I had kids like this in my rehab classroom all the time, where no matter what decisions they made at home, it wasn't going to change anything. They were still going to get beat at the end of the day. They were still going to have to take care of their little sister because their parents were drunk. So since they know that no action they take will change anything, you know, they could report their parents to Child Protective Services and nothing's going to happen. Or mom had a restraining order against dad and that didn't do anything. I still, she still got hit. So those kids say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. So why bother? And instead, I'll just self-soothe. I'll self-medicate. I'll numb out. Um, but giving kids a sense of efficacy is one of the most important things we do to, towards, you know, giving them that empowerment to feel like, okay, well, this makes me feel uncomfortable, but I can change it. And that's the other problem and why we tend to see drug, drug and alcohol use, you know, in people who don't have a lot of power in their world because they are disenfranchised, because they're marginalized, because they're, you know, seen as less than, um, you would assume that it would be 
really difficult to feel that sense of empowerment if everyone yeah. around you is telling you you have no power and you have no agency. Um, so giving kids as much as possible, I think, is one of the more important things we can do for kids. For Again, you know, I say for around gift of failure, I say one of the most important things we do is give kids the ability to self-advocate and give them feelings of not just self-esteem, but self-efficacy. Um, and I, you know, that's not just a substance abuse prevention thing. That's a raw, raw kids are amazing and they need to grow into being yeah. <laughs> productive adults. And, and if, you know, if we're looking at, you know, what ideally we want to raise kids who can go out there and be innovative and change the world and think outside the box and think of things that haven't been invented yet and go and invent them. Those are kids who feel self-efficacy because why would you go out and try to invent something if you didn't think that you would have any impact on the world, no matter hmm. what you did? Hmm. It's hmm. a good point. The which is so important, which is why coming back to education, which is why relevance in the classroom is so important. Because if I'm a teacher, sure, I can have a great relationship with a kid and I can make um, I can get them engaged sometimes if I tap into some emotional resources because we know that learning is emotional. But think about how much more power I have as a teacher to help them learn if what I'm teaching, let's say what I'm teaching is geometry, and I help them understand how an understanding of geometry can help them go out into the world and build bridges that won't fall down during an earthquake. I mean, that's that's taking what we're learning, the abstract stuff that we're learning in the classroom and giving it an application and not just an application to other people out there, but an application to that kid and to that kid's sense of power and possibility and hope within the world. Hmm. That's why it's so hard to teach kids the quadratic formula, because it's hard to give them an example of when in the course of everyday life, they will use that thing. You don't tend to run up against that. But you can, but certainly with fractions, there are ways with kids right. to, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, whether it's making pancakes in the morning or helping them understand seam allowances. Um, there are very practical ways to do that, which is why what some of what you do is so hard because so much of the stuff that, for example, is on the SAT doesn't get in there because they're, it's like, well, when am I going to ever use this? Am I learning this just for a test or am I learning this for anything practical? So the more we can hook into that relevance and practicality and ability personally to use that information, not just to make my life better, but to make the world better, hmm. that's when we have kids who really feel a sense of self-efficacy and competence in the world. And that's protective. College board might protest otherwise, I'm sure. But uh, um, adding to that, you make an excellent point, and I can't, I can't get the words right, but um, something to the fact that the more relevant kids feel in school, the more it predicts basically every out, every outcome for them as adults that, you know, how connected kids feel in school is this, you know, can you, you can predict, you know, how they're going to do with kind of everything, much like with the A scores. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to that saying of kindergarten teachers saying that the most important skills that kids learn are executive function skills and social emotional learning skills, because that has to do with our connection to other human beings. But yes, let relevance, that secret sauce of teaching is all about connecting the kid to the material and the material to the world in some way, or at least something the kid is interested in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, which brings us back around to, you know, we've talked a lot about this in terms of gift of failure and pandemic parenting and what makes it so hard. One of the opportunities has been, well, if your kid is home more and you know what your kid cares about, and we have this thing called, you know, YouTube, you can go and find, you know, videos that make, you know, the study of geometry or chemistry, whatever, um, relevant, whether it's in terms of a big, you know, exploding pile of foam in someone's backyard, or whether it's in terms of, oh, that's interesting, you know, <laughs> on Mythbusters, they showed that, um, you know, could, I can't remember who it was, it was like in Sparta, they had the big, oh, I'm going to get this wrong, but they were trying to show that there was some myth about the idea that the Greeks or the someone used mirrors to blind the sailors on ships hmm. um, and they had these big reflecting, I can't believe I'm now citing something. I don't know the words to, I've, I've gotten pretty good at not doing that, but um, they had to use geometry and they had to use, you know, I talk about Michael Stevens all the time. He has these great videos. Uh, he has a channel called Vsauce and a, another series called mind field on YouTube read um, where he'll do something like, you know, what would happen? What would it be like if the 
moon was a disco ball and he <laughs> has to and so you know it's a really cool question but it requires a lot of application of stuff that you wouldn't normally have an application for or what would happen if everyone on the earth jumped at the same time and the reason i love those questions is suddenly you're talking about plate tectonics and population density and gravity and all these other things but he is such a gifted educator again his name is michael stevens or vsauce because he makes this stuff that can feel awfully abstract, he makes it relevant for kids. Um, and it's that's why my kid oh, many times over has said, oh my gosh, I've learned more from Michael Stevens than I ever did, you know, from a whole year of science class. Because that's why Mythbusters, I think, was so um, so popular. That And kids learn so much from it. That and the explosions. <laughs> <laughs> this one's new to me. I can look, I look, I... I know how I'm going to spend the rest of my afternoon. So this will be, this will be fun. Vsauce is great. There's actually Vsauce 1, Vsauce 2, and Vsauce 3. Vsauce, the main channel, is Michael Stevens. And then mm. his Mind Feels show is about psychology. So he does experiments. Oh. And like, so like oh. in his first season, he did like isolation. And he was in an isolation room for three days. Um, he's done all sorts of, he looks at sort of the classic psychology experiments and looks at things like empathy and he's it's really interesting he's just a he's really cool he did a a tour with adam savage called um brains no not brain scoop uh brain something anyway brain candy brain candy mm -hmm. and it was a great mix of adam savage from mythbusters and michael stevens from vsauce you know just doing science experiments on the stage it was really cool hopefully that'll come back someday yeah <laughs> yes um, you have, um, uh, if I, you have a wonderful line I, and I'm going to, I'm going to ramp things up so I don't keep you all day. Cause I know you have really, so much, really time, gone you, off you have the so rails much, it's so much fun. Well, so, um, you, if I may, I'm just going to, this is page 194 in your wonderful book. So this, you write the secret sauce of parenting and educating for substance abuse prevention is to help our kids maintain positive, healthy relationships, harness the positive social pressure in their peer groups and equip all kids with the skills they need to stay safe and healthy, no matter who they hang out with. And here are the practical ways to do just that. It's so, it's so, I mean, th that's kind of like it in a book, right? And, and then the, and the how-to of it, which I love so much. I have to credit, I, just, just from the perspective of um, my talking a lot about my, my students with, uh, about things that I've done wrong. Uh -huh. So I had to learn, my editor taught me how to write like that. Like it's uh -huh. not my natural thing to be that organized. It was my editor <laughs> that taught me how to write like that. So I owe her so much. Yeah. That was something that evolved through learning how to write a book. It wasn't like something I could uh -huh. just do naturally. So when I talk to my students about writing and they're like, well, I know how to write an essay. I'm done now. Right. And I say, well, not really. That's not how writing goes. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag am writing. Yeah. Um, if, if I just, we'll take a, a couple minutes and talk about that, yeah. um, that, that it's the, the, the importance of healthy relationships. And of course, starting with parents, you know, who are mm -hmm. the, who are going to be the people reading this book. Um, I would love for you just to run through um, a few of the ideas that you have about how we as parents can really foster that connection. Maybe you talk about the Scoville sauce, you know, because that's hilarious. <laughs> um, but you, you tell you tell us her in the book of, of, about one of your students and when he graduated, this boy Jeremy, and um, you know he, he sort of had this connection with you and his classmates, and then his parents talked. Um, can you tell tell that story and, and about his dad because that was that was something. Yeah, it was. You know, graduation from rehab is scary because um, your kid's been in a safe place and now they've got to go back. And if you think about adolescent substance abuse in particular, um, adults, it, it can be much easier for adults to get sober and stay sober than for kids. Relapse is very much a part of kids' story. We would get the mm. same kids coming back over and over and over again, simply because if you think about it, they don't have a lot of control in their lives and we, you know, treat them and then send them back into the same peer groups and the same school with the same problems and the same teachers and back into the war back zone, to their back into their homes where they were either, you know, where there was abuse or they were taking care of a sibling or whatever that thing was. Um, so, you know, parents at graduations, uh, you know, it's it's with great hope that we welcome our child back into our lives. And, you know, the parents love to talk about, you know, they see such great promise and they always see such great promise in their children because when our kids are little, we dream about all of the things that our kids may become. Um, and it can make us so angry 
at them, at the world when they get derailed, when they, when drugs and alcohol come into the picture and sort of take that kid away. But when it comes down to it, what our kids really need to know is that we love them, that um, as for this kid in particular, that he, they picked him. I mean, he had been adopted and adoption is a topic in, sub, in the substance abuse world. Um, those feelings of, you know, whether it's those feelings of abandonment or whatever can, can really do mess you up a little bit. And Candy Finnegan talks about that beautifully quite a bit. Um, she's an expert in substance abuse. And, you know, they really got at what was most important about him is the fact that he was theirs and that they loved him and they chose him and that they're going to be there for him. You know, it, they've gotten angry at him over the years because of some of the things he's done, but that has never changed the way that they feel about him. And, you know, I think having that place to come back to, that's the reason why, you know, family dinners are so important. And it's not even about family dinner. Family dinner is emblematic of a thing, which is really about a regular return to connection with our fam as a family with our kids looking in each other's eyes it's harder to hide things when we have to look in each other's eyes and talk to each other um i will say however there's some conversations like substance abuse conversations that work really well in places like when you're next to each other and not looking at each other like mm -hmm. in the car or on a ski lift um as we have a ski lift was where many of our kids uh, sex conversations happened my husband had a lot of those conversations on the ski lift because it's less um, intense because there's less because you don't have to look each other in yeah, the eye yeah, yeah you can sort yeah. of stare off into the middle distance and yeah. pretend for a moment you're not quite there yeah um but the the thing that you were talking about in terms of the family dinner thing is you know as your kids get older and they're with adolescents and they don't really want to hang with you as much it's just devastating for me but my kids mm. don't want to hang out with me so there's a certain amount of event inventiveness that you have to go to to sort of get your kids to want to hang and um for me there's a story in the book about the fact that um one of our favorite shows as a family is called hot ones um and it's on a <laughs> youtube channel called first we feast and uh, Sean Evans is a talented, talented interviewer. And one of the reasons he's so good, not just because he's a great he's a great researcher. One of the reasons he's so good is that the person he's interviewing, he and the person he's interviewing eat 10 wings in ascending level of spiciness. The Scoville scale you talked about is the measure of spiciness. And we love that show. We watch it all the time. And so I decided, I went to my husband and I said, I have an idea, I'm gonna recreate that and we're gonna have a dinner a totally unhealthy dinner that's uh, either wings or vegan wings, depending on the person in our family. And I'll recreate, we'll come up with 10 questions, one for each kid. Um, some mm -hmm. of the questions were the same, some were different depending on the kid. And with each wing, the kids have to answer a question. And it wasn't just, it was so much fun, not just because it worked and the kids talked to us, but because they totally got how hard I was working to come to them from a place of their level. It was- uh -huh sort of fun at its essence. And with each question, we also talked about each other's answers. Like, oh, that's interesting. Like one of the questions was how much, uh, which of your parents do you think you resemble more in terms of personality traits? And, you hmm. know, if, if Ben answered it one way and Finn was like, oh man, I didn't think you'd say that. I thought it would be this other thing. We just found out a ton about each other. Um, not only from the kids' answers, but from our responses to those answers. And it was, it was fun. We were laughing. We ended up drinking ice cream at the end because the by the time you get up, <laughs> by the time you get up to the last sauce, it's called the last dab, and it's a, like a million Scoville units. It's inedible, um, but we all did it, and it was super fun. It was really really fun. You know, I I read this and I was so inspired. Except whatever gene or whatever it is that allows people to process hot things, yeah. I apparently have zero, and my wife somewhat joking this somewhat you know putting me in my place we'll we'll, we'll observe observe to anyone yeah ned uh yeah he starts to sweat with ketchup that's, i'm like you know would you just stop <laughs> well so and i don't know how the important thing about those questions also is like i did we didn't want to embarrass our kids like i wasn't going to ask yeah, them, yeah. you know stuff that i shouldn't have been poking around in these were questions about that just allowed me to get our kids to know our kids better but one thing that might work for you that worked for us new year's eve we were all pretty bummed about the fact that we couldn't be with friends and stuff like that we have a tradition we do with uh, a 
couple of friends. And so I went to a craft store that was having a sale and bought a bunch of canvases and paint and paintbrushes, just, you know, cheap stuff. And I told everyone to meet at the dining room table at six o'clock with two photographs that they had picked that they liked from their phone. And then we painted. And they are huh. horrifyingly bad. Finn turns out is quite talented. Ben chose the hardest thing ever. He chose a picture of him with all of his friends. And that's really uh-huh. hard to paint. I chose our house and my husband, a barn, and my husband chose our house. And they're horrible, but they're now hanging over our fireplace because they it's they're uh-huh. ugly, but they represent a really cool evening where we all painted. We were there for hours just painting. It was so much fun. That's so funny. I love that. Yeah, the secret, the secret sauce and that connection. Well, you to to end with you talking about those family dinners, about um, having folks share the high, the low, and the funny. Yeah, I love that. And I think your book does such a wonderful job of getting all three of those. And um, it, it just seems to me that that for for all the stories of people where things went well, and when things didn't go well. That connection, you know, really how they how they got through difficult situations was seemed to be almost in, you know, in direct correlation to how connected they felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to I people think around them in the that Piers chapter in particular, when I was we were talking a lot with my son Ben about his relationship with Brian. And by the way, huge mm. shout out to both Brian and Georgia; those are their real names. They very specifically wanted their names used. Uh, Brian is now working, um, you know wants to work with kids in a, and wants to make his own rehab. Um, Georgia is getting a master's degree now, but these are kids who stu- stood to lose like everything. Georgia nearly died. Wow. Uh, but Ben, you know, Ben's relationship with, with Brian was so scary for me because I knew Ben, Brian got kicked out of school more than once for his drug use. And I know that, you know, the research says that peer cohort is a huge predictor, uh, but Ben's having these conversations was so important because if I had just said, you can't be friends with Brian anymore, it's too dangerous. That would have gone Mm. bad so quickly. But instead we talked about it. And what came out of that was Ben's understanding that Ben and a couple of his friends were the stability that Brian needed. And they believed in Brian and they very, they went, you know, they really, it was important to them that he knew that they were going to be there for him because they might just be the thing that, makes him think twice before relapsing. And in the end, that ended up being 100% true. And I think Brian talks about that so eloquently, especially when he talks about the very last run they went on on the day that he, his last day at school, he got kicked out permanently at one point and uh, they had one last day together. And that really for Brian was the turning point because he realized, you know, I'm losing all of this. And if I had just read the research from a place of black and white, my temptation would have been, you can't be friends with this kid. I'm going to make sure that you're not friends with this kid. I'm going to make sure you're not in the same dorm with this kid. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's not about communication. And that's not about trust. That's about, you know, that sort of uh, what we were talking about before, the parenting style that's just about, you're going to do it this way because I said so, because I know best because I'm the adult. Because in that sense, I didn't know best. And I learned about a lot about my son and his ability for his compassion and his empathy and his loyalty as a friend. Um, Those are really important parts of him that I didn't have a full vision of before we talked a lot about that. We talked about it regularly. I checked in with him probably more than he was comfortable with, but he also understood, (laughs) he understood why I explained that I was checking in with him on that regularly because there is a lot of risk to him uh, by being around someone who's involved in drugs and alcohol as much as Brian was. Mm, I just love that, that, that sense of, of, of the respect that you conveyed to him and the trust, because uh, it, it, it can, I can well imagine it, it would be so easy to not do those and to, and to sort of, and to drag Ben away from, from yeah. Brian out of fear that, that Ben would get dragged down yeah. when in fact, it sounds like, you know, Ben put on his cape and, and saved his friend. I think it, it helped that Ben was anchored on the other side by a group of yeah. friends. And he was, you know, involved in a sport that was, is sports, 
is a mixed bag. I mean, the more it turns out that the more um, contact sport sporty it is, the yeah. more contact there is, uh, the higher the rates of substance abuse. Ben was a cross country runner. Levels are really low there. Um, and he was very active in his team and the teammates were the people I'm talking about. So he did have that anchor. If he hadn't had that anchor and he was really adrift, if he was like, if he didn't have a lot of friends and Brian was his only friend, that would have been a very different level of worry for me, right. which is why, again, we can't think about these things in black and white. And the more I know about Ben, the more I can gauge how concerned I'm supposed to be about this given this particular situation. <laughs> I did a podcast with a guy who was a um, physical trainer and a bit and a hardcore runner and was explaining to me that we talk about running, releasing endorphins. He said, but it also releases endocannabinoids. Yeah. Yep. It's the same compound. Yeah. <laughs> no, but appara- apparently only if you run a certain <laughs> number of miles. So you don't get that in the 100-yard dash. You get that in cross country. So yeah. maybe, maybe they're onto something. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, there's, sports can have a positive risk effect and a negative risk effect. And I go into that in the book as well. Yeah. Well, with two quick things. If you were to go back and think about yourself as a person, Mm -hmm. young person, and your parents, if you were to give one piece of advice to your mom and dad, and one piece of advice to your, I don't know, teenage or 20 year old self, what what might it be? For me, it really, you know, my role in the family was as the peacekeeper and the appeaser and the perfect one Mm. that could fix everything. And, And I think it's, that's always been difficult for me to remember that I can't fix everyone. And when my parent went into recovery, I had to realize that I couldn't be in charge of that person's recovery, that whether or not my parents stayed sober was not under my control. And no matter what I did, I couldn't make that happen. And that was, you know, that's a little serenity prayer kind of thing. Um, yeah. You know, know when, what you control and what you can't kind of thing. Um, but that was really important to me. And I think if, I wish I had learned that earlier that, you know, I can control, I can't control other people's actions, but I can re- control my reaction to those actions. Mm -hmm. And that's been one of the most important things I've learned. And um, yeah, that was, that's definitely advice I would give. Well, I am one grateful for your time and two, so grateful for your, your honesty, your openness, your vulnerability, the incredible research um, that you put into this book. It is, um, it's, I mean, I wish I'd had this earlier, uh, but I have it now uh, as does the rest of the world. That's the problem um, with my writing books that I need and can't find is I have to get to the point where I need the book and then I have to go write it. I mean, that was the story with Gift of Failure. It's the story with this book. So yeah, I wish I'd had this a lot earlier. And actually I have to say, it's been tough for my younger kid because he Finn says, you know, this is so unfair. Like when you had, when Ben was my age, you believed that whole moderation myth and you believed in the whole, like, if we just raise kids like Europeans and let them have sips they'll learn moderation and now that you know that that's all a big myth and it's not true it's like now there's a total abstinence until 21 approach and that's not fair Ben got (laughs) so you know but on the other hand I'm modeling for him what I most want to see in him which is huh I wasn't doing that right and I've learned something and I'm going to change and try to be better and do better next time and sorry he happens to be the the Hopefully, I just, I, I, I just picture you whispering to him, I love your brain more than your brother's brain. <laughs> That's bad parenting. People don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. Yeah. But, you know, modeling what I want to see from him and myself. And I just got to stick with that and hope I'm doing the right thing. Well, you really do walk the walk. So, I hope so. walk the talk, walk the talk, whatever. You're getting it right. <laughs> talk the talk and walk the walk, I hope. Yeah. So. yeah. Mm, it's good stuff. Jessica Leahy, the book you. is The Addiction Inoculation. Uh, out, what, April 6th? April I don't know when this 6th. podcast is dropping. April 6th. Um, there's another, mm. Oh, and just for your listeners, there's another killer book coming out that day uh, by Julie Lithcott-Hames called Your Turn, How to Raise, an, How to Be an Adult. And it's going to be, for those of you out there who have kids who are going to be leaving the nest soon, this could be a fantastic graduation gift for them. So April 6th is a big deal because Julie and I both have books coming out that day. So little props for buy them both amazon you can we can you can save the economy as well save the environment as well by having them delivered in the same box from amazon or your local bookstore 
<laughs> Actually, can I say that if you or if you go to my website, uh, jessicalahey.com, there is a link directly to my local bookstore where I will be traveling to sign personally, you know, do those like personalized signatures on the title page and they ship for free. So if you go to my website, jessicalahey.com, click on the link that goes to the Phoenix Books in Burlington, Vermont, and I can sign it for you there. I can put whatever you want in there um, with some limitations, I assume. And <laughs> and, uh, and they'll ship it for free and you can have a signed copy shipped for free. Perfect. We're on it. We're on it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's an, it's an incredible book. It really is. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Bye.